In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we celebrate the uh, festival of our Lord Jesus Christ's Epiphany, which falls every year on January 6th, this last Friday. The word epiphany means manifestation or revealing. To manifest something is to make clear or plain or visible that which was previously hidden. Our Lord Jesus Christ has manifested himself. And in manifesting himself, it is important to know that he is manifesting something that has existed from long since long before the world was created, as we just sang. He is, he is revealing himself of the Father's love begotten. He is revealing the Father's love for us. So if we ask what was hidden, this was hidden. It was hidden deep in creation because we will not learn this love by examining creation or trying to move creation around or coming to understand it. Christ was hidden. Who he was as the eternal Son of God was hidden from the sight of all men. What great power he had that he would exercise toward us and over us. All was hidden from the sight and expectation of all and would only be revealed through the display of great humility. And this was on purpose. It was for our good, as Jesus himself once exceedingly rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Epiphany is for babies. How fitting, then, that in order to reveal what was hidden from us and what will only be revealed to babies, God himself became a baby. How fitting. And so we celebrate his epiphany by hearing about wise men from the East who traveled to worship God their Savior by laying gifts before a baby. In order to reveal himself as true God, God hides himself even more deeply than he does in creation itself. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. His deeds are vile. That's why he says there's no God. There's no God, there's no judge. But it is the fool who actually contends that there is no God. What can be known from God in created things are, as St. Paul tells us, manifest. They're obvious. There's no need for any further epiphany to prove God's existence than what the snow and frosts on the trees make quite plain on a pretty winter morning. Obviously, God exists. We don't come to church to be persuaded that God exists. But God became man precisely not to be seen in what is obvious, in what already is manifest. For by those things that already reveal his glory, his invisible attributes and power, man is left without excuse and judged. He is left in his sin, and it is exposed before God. 
A sunset which no man can paint will reveal God's glory to be sure, but it will not reveal his grace and favor. As a Christian, you may, of course, have this God whom you know in mind when you see these beautiful works, but do not be deceived. The most beautiful sight in all creation will not reveal the proof that God's love is for you. Rather, for whatever benefit from God's creation that you enjoy, man stands indebted to God for his undeserved generosity. Therefore, the extent to which God proves himself to exist in creation is the same extent to which God proves that you owe him everything and can't pay for it. Man stands unworthy of the least of whatever good creation reveals. Creation will reveal a God who gives you, will not reveal a God who gives you a future, but a God who blows his breath and causes all things to wither and fade and die. That is the God whom you meet in creation and we're all consumed by his wrath. No, this is not why God became man, to prove that he is God became man in order to do much more than prove to fools that he exists. God became man to reveal to sinners that he is their savior from sin. And this is extremely important. God didn't become man to prove his existence, but to reveal to us that the God who is and who made us and to, and to whom all, we owe all good things and to whom every soul is accountable to prove that he is none other than the God who has come to save us from our sins and reconcile us to himself forever. Hallelujah. Oh, what good news this is. It is good news only to those who know how far our sin separates us from God and how dearly we need him to shine something better than sunlight upon us. For the deeper we look for proof of God's existence in creation, as though that will bring us peace the more we discover how little we deserve and how death draws near. We will discover a God who does not bend anything to serve us, but forces us to ply creation to serve ourselves. We discover a God who forces us to work for a future until he snuffs it away. But God shines a better light upon us in the light of his grace, which will only be seen in the darkness of faith. This light is found in Christ alone, and his light is concealed. It is hidden. It is hidden. It must be made manifest. It must be made manifest in a supernatural way. God became man and hid who he truly was. He became man so that we might know who, tr who God truly was. We must now and will now only learn to come to God as he wants to be approached and known by finding him in Christ, his son. He comes to us in meekness. He is ignored and despised, but whatever the gospel teaches us and wherever it is preached to all nations, the power of God to save us who believe is manifest. And this is the theme of Epiphany, that God manifests what is hidden. God himself, as creator of all things, is of course not hidden. But if we'll find God is the savior of all men, the God who is for us, if we'll find God not angry at us or 
charging our sins against us, if we will find God favorably disposed toward us, even in our old age, when the slow creep of death proves day by day what the wages of sin truly are, then we must find it where wise men once learned to lay aside their wisdom and to become fools, who learned to say in their heart, there is no God other than this child who lies helpless in a manger, born to be my Savior and Lord by taking his kingdom and power on the cross to take my sins away. St. Paul writes in agreement with Jesus' prayer, Since in the wisdom of God the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So let's consider what wisdom the wise men already knew and what it was worth. What they counted it as worth. So that we might follow their example and consider what wonderfully foolish message they learned to know instead. And what that is worth to us. These wise men, as we call them, were magi from the east. We get our word magic from magi. Magic, of course, is a loaded word today. We think of sorcery, witchcraft, or maybe just sleight of hand, illusion. Years ago, it really just referred to the clever manipulation of created things that we call science today. And if you think about it, even still today to the unlearned, even very explainable phenomena that any chemistry teacher can reproduce in a classroom lab looks like some source of sorcery. And so it is that those who studied the natural properties of the earth and the movements of the sky came to be regarded by the simple as magicians of sorts. It takes some good deal of studying, to be sure, but learning to see how amazing creation is and how things work and how they can be used and applied for the benefit of man has always fascinated people. And much like we still see today, there's plenty of superstition that puts way too much confidence in such things and regards the experts as some sort of priests or something. Well, the Magi were experts. They were natural philosophers, scientists, chemists, astrologers, biologists. They knew how things worked when you didn't. But it was not by being so educated in these things that the Magi made a journey of hundreds of miles to Judea. If they sought God, they could have found God in Arabia or Persia, no less than anywhere else. But they sought, as we've considered already, more than God who can be known and proven to exist a God who can be feared in nature, a God who makes us work for whatever benefit we need. No, but they came to find a God who is known and loved in Scripture. They had learned to trust in the God revealed in Scripture because they found there in Scripture a God revealed who has mercy on sinners, who can't trust in their own works to make the best life now, let alone trust in their own works to find peace with God once they are dead. This is what they came looking for. Now, there are a couple of prophecies I'd like to talk about that specifically apply to the king of the Jews being born. The first was a promise made to Judah himself, the fourth son of Jacob. It was a promise of one final king who would be born to him before there were any kings in Israel. As Jacob lay dying and blessed his 12 sons, he said to Judah, 
And this was before there were any kings or scepters. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. A scepter is what a king holds. I just taught my daughter that. She got a scepter, a princess scepter. And a king's scepter, I suppose, is less dainty and plastic. It's strong. It shows his power. The scepter shall not depart from the line of Judah. This means that there will always be a king. Later on, of course, this was specifically applied then to David, who was of the line of Judah. God shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of David forever. So when the scepter does finally depart from Judah, the prophecy says that Shiloh will come. That's the promise. The true king. Shiloh means peace. When David later named his own son and heir, Solomon, consider this. He was confessing his faith in this promise that Shiloh would come. Shiloh and Solomon are the same name. They both mean peace. This lawgiver will not make war and condemn. He will establish peace. The obedience that people will give this lawgiver will not be the obedience of terror, but the willing obedience of faith. Scripture says very much about the peace of this kingdom. He is our king and we are his subjects, not based on our obedience to the law, as we just heard from Romans 3, but based on our faith in the gracious promises he makes to set us free from the curse of the law. Shiloh, of course, is Jesus. He is the greater than Solomon. He is here. Now the other prophecy I have in mind, the wise men may have heard, and it seems likely maybe they did, because it's the only prophecy that says anything about a star. And again, it tells of a king who is to come. This prophecy made by Balaam, who was paid by the Moabites to curse Israel as they entered the promised land. But then God forced him to speak a blessing instead. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, there's a scepter again, shall rise out of Israel. Now this is pretty neat. The wise men saw the star and came to Jerusalem. It's the most reasonable place to come. It's the capital city. And we know nothing of their journey, just this, that they arrived asking about Jesus as we just heard in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In these first verses of our gospel lesson, we see these two prophecies converge. First, it was in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king was not a Jew. He was not even an Israelite. He was a descendant of Israel, or Jacob's evil brother Esau. He had, at best, a passable knowledge of the true religion, and at most, whimsical curiosity about this Jesus. In fact, he was very troubled by their words, for he was an illegitimate king. Consider the prophecy. The scepter had departed from Judah, 
and Herod was holding it. It was indeed time for Shiloh to come. And now these magi came saying that they saw his star. Amazing. Herod feared for his throne, but it was not his throne that Christ came to ascend. However much the Magi knew of these two prophecies, we are not sure. We're not told. We know that they likely heard of such things from the prophet Daniel, who was himself something of a Magi or a wise man in ancient Babylon when God punished his people by letting them be taken into captivity. Of course, God brought them back, but for 600 years, this promise of the coming Christ kept faith aglow in these foreign Gentiles. How many generations is that? Gentiles passing down father to son, professor to student. This expectation of a savior to be born in the land of Judah. Whatever word of God they had, they had indeed knowledge that only comes from the word of God. That Christ would be born king of the Jews. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, we know whom we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And so these magi came to worship a God whom the glories of their scientific and philosophical expertise and wisdom and knowledge couldn't reveal. They came to worship a baby. And they did. Because only this God, only the true God who makes promises that he keeps is worth knowing. And this is true even if he is nothing much to see. It is true even if his appearance offends the wisdom of man. These magi laid aside their natural knowledge that made them look wise, and which if you had, you'd be rich, rich, and honored, and respected. And they embraced what made them look like fools. They embraced the knowledge revealed to us still today of a child born for us, a son given to us, Christ the Lord, who rules over us by grace and kindness and pardon. He is given to us, and continues to give his body and blood as our most precious and cherished gift. And he remains giving it to us through means that are despised by the world. But it is our heart's most beauteous flower. It is the most wonderful thing that God would continue to come to sinners meekly and humbly in order to rule in our hearts by grace. There are two religions in the world, and only two. There is the religion of works and the religion of grace. There's the religion of nature and the religion of divine revelation. The religion of nature is reasonable. It is attractive to anyone who is able to think. It's appealing to anyone who has a conscience and knows right from wrong. It's the religion that teaches man to offer something to God and to give something in return for some sort of reimbursement. It is is a transactional religion that even pious Christians fall into embracing when the gospel is too good for their sinful hearts to believe. If I do this, if I give this, if I apply myself here, if I deny myself there, if I contribute this or that, if I turn my life around that, in that place, If I keep this resolution, if I stop confessing the same sin, well, then maybe I will gain the knowledge and certainty that God is for me. 
But this is the wisdom of the flesh. This is the negotiation of the flesh. It makes sense. Do this and you will live, Jesus said to the one who trusted in the law. And so your conscience will say to you, if you think you will learn God by what you must do, do this and you will balance out whatever sin you've committed. Do this and good will follow you. Peace will come to you and rule over you. But it's a lie. The, the natural religion is the man-made religion of the law. Do, 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 and what will you do? What will you give? What will you travel hundreds of miles to lay before the feet of God? Who until you give it and he accepts it, you have no confidence that he is for you. What will you do to fulfill what he commands and to keep any peace that he might let you have in your heart? How will you keep it? What will you learn and understand in order to discover how to earn from God what you need from God and how far must you go before you know it for sure? It is from this natural religion, this human wisdom, this wicked religion invented by the sinful heart of man and as often as sin rises in your heart, so doubt rises in your heart and by nature you want to cling to this damn lie. It is from this wicked religion that God sent his son to deliver us. He's not a transactional God who gives us a transactional religion of do and, and give and deny yourself this and earn God's favor. No, he sees our misery and we see what gospel promise there is lying hidden even in the doctrine that we are totally corrupt and without strength in our spiritual condition because it is to corrupt sinners that God still speaks because only he must work anything good in us. Or would he bother to speak to poor sinners who have no strength unless he also intended to work all the good that we need ever worked in our hearts? The only transaction of our religion the only transaction of our religion is the one that we find on the cross where Jesus offers his holy life of obedience and his pure, precious blood in order to redeem us from the curse of the law and to win God's favor for us. Not with gold or silver, frankincense or myrrh or anything like that. Not with good intentions and promises to be better, but with a perfect and completed holy life that he offers to be punished in your place. There is the transaction. There is the transaction where he is most gloriously and beautifully crowned king. There he takes his scepter. Because the scepter he takes to rule over you is a scepter that absolves you of all your sins. And gives to you the mystery that was hidden from the ages. The hope of glory. Christ in you, a good conscience, peace with God. So thank God this has been hidden. Thank God it's hidden. Thank God with Jesus that it was hidden for this. This is what pleases God. Where man's wisdom is put to shame, man's bartering is told to stop, where the foolishness of God saves us. Here is the great epiphany made only in God's word, which we gather to hear where hearts made humble by the judgment of the law and the guilt of a bad conscience and the voice of God that we must agree with, where such consciences and humble sinners are taught to trust in the promises that God makes and keeps. 
So what is hidden from man who thinks he must earn is therefore only revealed to us from God's own mouth, who spoke in various and sundry ways in time past by the prophets, but has in these latter days spoken to us by his son. It is taught to us by him who was born a baby in Bethlehem to be our king, to reveal to us the father who loves us and to gain for us eternal life in his name. Dear Christians, this is the religion that is true. It is a religion planned from eternity when first God chose to make man in his image to know him. It is the love now revealed to us which teaches us to know him as our humble, meek, and forgiving Lord. He owns all things. All things are placed under his feet so that gold and silver will purchase nothing from God. The thoughts of man and what we might figure out will discover nothing of what God hides. Your attention span is not what brings the grace of God to you. Your intelligence, your memory, your life of piety, how faithful your children turned out to be, the success of your life as you seek some way to crown yourself with a good conscience when you lie dying. Nothing that you put in the offering plate, nor even your prayers will earn anything from God. Thank God. Thank God that such grace is hidden even from those who look very pious and know how to live their lives better than you. No sacrifice you give earns anything. So why bring it? You bring it like the Magi did, to praise him whose sacrifice has earned everything. The Magi traveled hundreds of miles to give gifts to the incarnate God who came in the form of a baby. They did it because no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son of the Father who is in the bosom of the Father. He came to declare him, to declare him as the one who opens his heart to you and shows mercy, forgives you all your sins, he renders all things in the world, whether you own them, control them, or not, serviceable to you. All things. Think of that. So to whatever extent he gives you control in this life of any of those things, you bring what you can to him to support the preaching of the gospel, to honor that mercy that you depend on to vouchsafe that that gospel might continually be preached to you and that it might be preached to other people too. The children might be given instruction to remain in the faith. You support the preaching of the gospel. You do this not to earn anything from God, but to give glory to him who saved you by pure grace. The only transaction is the one we confess and depend on. He's made it to the Father who loves us. He is our King, and so we bring him all things which he already owns. He owns us, and we bring him our hearts, and we let him purify it by teaching us to trust in his mercy. He comes to bring us his kingdom of grace and to lead us through all suffering, guilt, and even death into his kingdom of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.